Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hey Coffee Nation, welcome to Coffee Is Me podcast, I'm your host Valerian Rava. What's up? On my front, I finally launched my American brand, I should say our American brand Unleashed Coffee. I teamed up with a Brazilian farmer who lives here in the San Francisco Bay Area, his name is William, and we started to offer his best crops to the American public. These are exciting times because it was a very long time ago that I stood in the front of the production roaster and packaged coffee. And I, and I do not mind at all. It makes me humble and realize that producing coffee is a hard work. So Mr. and Mrs. CEO and directors of coffee and all the fancy titles, maybe it is time to get your hands dirty, huh? What do you think? <laughs> so you can remember how it used to be. Well, it is up to you. <laughs> you don't have to do it. But I'm doing it and I'm enjoying it. We also started to pitch to local groceries. And I have to admit, I was very afraid of this. Because when we did the same with Green Plantation in Europe, the attitude was very unwelcoming. We really felt unwelcome on this, in these places. Here in the United States, I was positively surprised. We have a lot of fun when we're presenting coffee to buyers and supermarket owners. We always feel welcome. They ask us a lot of questions and we learn in the process. I don't know if it's true for the whole United States, but here in the San Francisco Bay Area, the local supermarkets, especially the family-owned, are pretty awesome. Anyhow, I hope you are also doing well and you are having fun with your company. Feel free to share your experience in our Facebook group, Coffee Is Me. And if you have any troubles, just drop us a question there because there is tons of awesome people who are happy to help you out. And maybe even I pitch in sometimes. Sometimes. In the next two episodes, I have a true gem for you. It is Seth Mills, who is the coffee expert at Mr. Box. Mr. Box is one of the first coffee subscription services in the United States and accept the very interesting business model. I was intrigued that they were launched using Kickstarter and they also were pitching at Shark Tank. Shark Tank is one of my favorite TV shows where entrepreneurs fight for the hearts and the cash of the investors. As you will hear in the interview, Mr. Bach did exceptionally well on this show. We are also going to talk about company culture at Mr. Bach's, which I have to say I fall in love with. Did you know that they do not have a central office? Actually, they are scattered all over the United States and sometimes all over the world. How does this work? Well, you will have to listen to this episode, of course. <laughs> I hope you will enjoy. Hey Seth, welcome in Coffees.me podcast. I'm so thrilled to have somebody from Mr. Box on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I mean, you guys are killing it with your coffee subscriptions. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of requests for you, by the way. So it's not just like one day I woke up and I said, oh, Mr. Box. Actually, people demanded you. So I'm really happy that you you guys are here. Yeah, that's great to hear. Okay. So... Every time I ask the same question, so people will know you, who you are. So what's your personal coffee story and how did you get to Mr. Box? Uh, yeah, so I started in coffee a little over 10 years ago. I started at a Starbucks kiosk at a grocery store and then worked my way over to a company operated Starbucks. Um, worked as a barista for a couple years 
and started roasting coffee at home and getting really inter- interested in it. Um, I eventually got a job as a barista at Cartel Coffee Lab, um, which is a, a local coffee roaster with a couple coffee shops out here in Arizona. Um, kind of, I did a little bit of everything. I was a barista, a roaster, a trainer, and coffee educator um, for a number of years. And then from there, I met Connor and Sam and started working at Mista Box. And now it's been about 10 years. Oh, wow. Sweet. Do you remember your first coffee? My first coffee, like ever? Ever. Your first coffee you ever had in your life. Uh, I have a visual image in my head of probably like my dad's like f- can of Folgers brewed on like his old Mr. Coffee Maker that he still has today. Sweet. What was your first impression? Uh, at the time, I thought it was really cool because I was, you know, probably like five years old or something and probably enjoyed it. Probably added a bunch of milk to it or something. Oh, cool. Okay. Sweet. It's interesting what you said about the Starbucks. Uh, so many coffee professionals started at Starbucks or Starbucks somehow motivated them. I mean, Yeah, I think it's a really good gateway for a lot of people. I think they have a lot of things in place um, as far as their internal education goes that gives baristas a lot more coffee knowledge if, if you're willing to look for it a little bit. Um, and especially the coffee community online, at least when I was getting, you know, it started in coffee, it had really just started burgeoning and getting really big. This is probably 2008, 2009. It started getting, there was a lot of, you know, forums, a lot of, you know, chat groups, you know, on the internet, a lot of information started to become available. Um, so I think from there, it's really easy for baristas who want to learn more, who are working, even if they're not working at, you know, the best local shop or third wave shop or whatever. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to, to learn a lot of information and really dive deeper. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm also Starbucks. Uh, not, not trained. I never worked for Starbucks. There was no Starbucks uh, where I come from. Now they are, but uh, I'm from Slovakia. So in, when I started in 2001, there was no Starbucks, but my wife is American. She, in 2001, she, we had a fight that, you know, who has better coffee, Europe or United States? And she was very Starbucks positive. So she brought me from United States a present, a Starbucks, a bag of Starbucks. I think it was Sumatra or something. And uh, it was so different than anything else I drank in 2001. And everything that I drank up to that point were kind of forgers of Europe, like people, maybe Europeans know them, Chibo and Edusho and all these, you know, mega brands. So, yeah, it really opened my eyes, too. So, yeah, go Starbucks. Thank you for uh, your contribution for, you know, uh, making new coffee professionals, I guess. Absolutely. All right. So how about today? What is your uh, favorite coffee today? Is it still secret? Because on your profile, uh, on your website, you say uh, you don't want to say it, right? You you just say that it's a secret. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Um, One of our... One of the founder's friends actually wrote those bios for us. And when he was interviewing me, he asked me, you know, what my favorite coffee was. Um, And, you know, I told him I didn't have one. And it's not obviously, you know, I love coffee. Um, But, the you know, the reason why I don't say that I have a favorite coffee is I get to taste so many incredible coffees from so many of my roaster partners that it's impossible to to pick a single favorite. Um, Obviously, I have my personal preferences. I love 
really well balanced and sweet coffees. You know, so I personally love coffees from Ethiopia, Kenya, Guatemala, El Salvador, Colombia. Um, a lot of those origins, I tend to gravitate. I excuse me, <clears throat> I tend to gravitate towards. Um, but if you know, I don't have a particular coffee that kind of sticks out in my mind as as a favorite. Okay. Also, you don't want to offend your uh, roasters, I guess, roaster friends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's my case sometimes. You know, I have also a lot of friends who roast, and I'm like, I just don't want to do that. It's, uh, you know, you don't talk about your favorite baby, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. Favorite. I think, uh, you know, when I get excited about coffees, because there are every, I think every one of my roasters, you know, at least once a couple or a couple times a year, I, you know, all of my roasters put out a coffee that is really surprising or, um, you know, is kind of like a cut above the rest. And so when, when those coffees come along, I do tend to get excited about them and talk about them a little bit more in my personal circles. And I'll tend to, um, you know, pick those coffees for customers who I know will definitely appreciate coffees that are a little bit more interesting or, or, you know, definitely surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And, Coffee is changing all the time, right? You know, every year, even the same farms have different crops and they process it differently and there is always something new there. So, yeah, I, I can get that. Uh, I think that what's really interesting, too, is starting in coffee back in 2007, 2006, um, you know, there would come a along a single coffee that was really interesting and it would kind of blow everybody's minds away. Um, and nowadays, I feel like it's it's a lot harder to get coffee professionals to really enjoy coffee or get excited about a particular coffee because the quality of coffee um, has improved so much over the last 10 years that, you know, the standard of coffee is getting better and better at origin. Roasters are getting better at their job. It's easier, you know, grind, you know grinder technology. Everything is easier to make coffee. And so it's honestly harder to impress professionals because the quality the level of of quality out there is just significantly higher than it was that's so well put man that's so well put uh i had i was volunteering uh two years ago for the uh good food awards everything almost everything from uh, uh famous roasters was geisha and of course of course yeah and you go like you know isn't i love geisha it's it's a beautiful coffee but aren't we limiting ourselves? Because that's the only one which can impress today. Is, the, is it the only one which we have to kind of push because there's nothing else out there? I don't know. It's, it's a very strange world now because uh, I feel that it's really unfair to many other coffees, you know. It's, so what's next, man? Do you know? What's going to happen? Don't, don't even get me started on geishas. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little over geishas right now, personally. Aww. <laughs> I mean, I think that they're. I think that they're delicious. I think that the reason why we enjoy them so much is because they're they're just different. Um, you know, when you look back at when when you know geishas hit the scene in two thousand five, um, and everybody started. You know, there was just so much hype around this coffee, and and one of the reasons that it was so distinguished was because the cup quality was just so different than everything on the table. Um, and therefore, be just because it was different, I mean, yeah, obviously, obviously it was good and delicious, um, but the one of the main reasons why it was hyped was because it was just unique. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, now 
especially in competitions, barista competitions, brewing competitions, roasting competitions, a lot of roasters tend to use geishas because they know that it's going to be different and stand out from the standard, you know, cup qualities that you might get from a mild central or from a just a very solid washed Colombian or even some of the best Ethiopian coffees out there. Um, it's just going to stand apart a little bit. And so it's not necessarily that it's better. I mean, in my opinion, there's a lot of aspects of geishas, especially in body um, or other kind of more balanced traits that it doesn't, that it doesn't meet all of my criteria for, but it's different. And so it tends to do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's to me, to me, I think that we prize so much value on geishas um, just because it's different. And for the consumer market, um, you know, a lot of consumers aren't going to be able to taste the difference. They're not going to have that, you know, like instant gratification of, oh, this is like so much better. Honestly, because, you know, if they pay, if they're paying $50 or $100 for a half pound of coffee and there's not a real metric for standards or quality about how that coffee is going to be different, I would much rather have consumers put that money in investing it towards better brew gear, better grinders mm-hmm. um, at home, as opposed to spending that kind of money on a hyped, on a hyped coffee that, you know, honestly could or could not be bad, good or bad. Um, I've seen a lot of very mediocre or subpar geishas that still sell for an incredibly high price and you can get much, much better coffees for far more affordable Totally agree on that. Totally agree on that. But you know, the thing what you mentioned that the baristas and people compete with coffee are using these uh, geisha, it it uh, they also kind of refuse the other lot slowly, and they feel that this is the only way to win. And that's what kind of saddens me because when I was learning cupping and when I was learning the the you know how to evaluate coffee, I was always uh, told that you have to take a coffee with a perspective. Where, where is it coming from? You know, what's the story? So, for example, the Brazilian coffees will never cup the same as Ethiopians. But, hey, there are some great, amazing Brazilian coffees, right? So, uh, you always have to take it in perspective. Where is it coming from? And, and the geisha is, you know, it's it, it's lucky because it's genetically a little bit different than the, the rest of what we have on the world. So, it had, you know, a different trade, different uh, line. I would say in English, I guess different line. So uh, there is that shocker. But yes, there are some bad geishas out there and they still sell a full lot of money because uh, there are geishas, right? Right. Okay. Uh, I think that this is an interesting topic. We can go hours and hours, but I want to talk about Mr. Box because uh, our listeners are business oriented. So let's give them the, the business aspect of the of the coffee too. Sure. But one first question uh, why do you think that Mr. Box is different than any other subscription service? We have so many subscription services. Why you guys are different? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, overall, I think the experience from Mr. Box, uh, you know, from start to finish is just a lot better than our competitors. Um, you know, we're working with a variety of roasters. I think we're up to 40 roasters from all over the country. Um, and so we're able to provide you know, a level of variety and a level of, you know, different coffees to meet different people where they're at um, along the way, kind of far better than a lot of our competitors. And I think that we prioritize customer experience and customer service um, really highly. So 
from our website to our um, customer care after you've signed up, all of those things are, are really important to us and we pay a lot of attention to that and we just want to make sure that every customer has the best experience that we possibly can deliver. Cool. I I thought, I have to say that I give you kudos on your uh, website. It's very well done. I uh, And I'm not talking about aesthetics because, you know, that's that's the easy part, but the navigation and how you can select your coffees. I like your roast levels and everything. So I was, as a coffee, as a as a computer nerd and you know web designer in secret, I also was very impressed uh, by that. So good job there. Yeah, thank you. Okay, uh, cool. I, I like like your uh, and you know your website also shows that your you really are uh, customer oriented, which I feel and I hope I will not offend too many roasters that. Nowadays, especially the third wave uh, companies have issue with. We are so many times mm, like trying to impress our industry fellows, and we mm-hmm. forget about the consumer. Yeah. So I like like your approach with the uh, consumer orientation. I think that that's a really interesting point. Um, in my experience, especially as I've transitioned through my career from being a cafe barista to being a roaster um, and and trainer and educator, it's really easy, especially, you know, when you're kind of in your own community or your own world. um, And then you're looking at what other people are doing on social media. You know, we tend to get really um, self-involved and we think a lot about how can we present ourselves to impress our peers? How we, how can we present ourselves to, um, you know, to really, yeah, I mean it's very it's very internal focused. We 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 tend to focus a lot on what other what our peers and other industry professionals are thinking and will how are they going to judge us? And sometimes, you know, the cost of that is that we tend to forget about the consumer. We don't talk about coffees. We don't describe coffees the way that an end consumer who might not have a burr grinder or they might not know about using better quality water, or they might not have the best, newest, latest, greatest um, coffee brewing gear out there and, and how they're in real, in real life and practical terms, how that coffee is going to taste for them. And we tend to focus on a lot of the superficial, super fine, detailed, very industry nerd, you know, central centered uh, content and, and context. And I think that you know, that can be really off-putting, especially to a consumer who isn't educated or doesn't know a lot about that stuff. Um, it's very easy to get turned off by that. So especially with MisoBox, one of our goals, or at least one of my personal goals in developing our coffee program is to be as approachable as we possibly can and to talk about coffee in real practical terms. And it's it might be dumbed down a little bit. Um, you know, the benefit is if we can start there, we can we can nerd out about coffee as much as any professional out there. Um, but we're going to start kind of at the basics and meet you where you're at rather than expect that all of our customers are already coffee enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Nicely, nicely said. You know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and each region here is a little bit different. And you can see that, for example, in Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco, people are very happy to nerd out and all these third wave companies are blooming. But here in North, where I am in Marin, uh, that's a bit different. People are intimidated by that. So, you know, your approach kind of dumb it down, helps them because the guys are, you know, these guys usually are very busy. They work a lot and they drink coffee and 
they do not have really the time and passion to kind of go after that nerdiness. But they they would be happy to have great coffee. So, you know, that's why uh, I also mentioned that issue that many times we as coffee roasters or coffee companies, and I'm including myself in that, we many times um, kind of forget about the consumer because we are kind of trying to impress the, the nerdy aspect of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. You guys, you, you did an amazing launch, um, checking out different companies in different industry, you know, doing all this, checking out the startups and, and living in this world. You guys did the, the, the dream launch. You did Kickstarter campaign, which is great, not only for funding money, but of course, get the exposure. And then later you got on Shark Tank. And just a little note for people who don't know what Shark Tank is. It's a TV show where you have, I think, four investors. Five. five okay. Five venture capitalist investors who you have to pitch your product, your service, and they decide whether they're going to invest with you or not. I never heard of this show. Maybe I heard it like a year ago or something like that. Since then, I'm a very big fan because it's, it's really fun to see how people pitch because I love pitches. I mean, those are very hard to do, to do a good pitch, of course. And uh, I also like how these venture capitalists have, you know, kind of, uh, I'll use the word destroy <laughs> these poor startups, but they basically try to find their the, like weak points and uh, decide whether they want to invest with them or not. So it's, proving the concept. And again, it's a great exercise plus an amazing exposure. So you guys did that, right? Uh, did you plan this? Was it in a plan or was it something what you just winged or just happened? I mean, I think every entrepreneur or business owner will tell you that you're always winging it. Um, you know, no one, no one ever, you know, even if you've been to business school, um, you know, you can never predict what's going to happen. And you're always kind of rolling with the punches, especially as a startup. Um, so yeah, we absolutely winged it. Uh, Sam and Connor actually met the founders. They met while they were studying business at the entrepreneurship program at U of A, um, the university of Arizona, which is located, uh, in Tucson. And, um, they were in, in this program together and the, the model or the class assignment was to come up with a business model. Um, and you know, by the end of the semester, you're, you know, you're basically supposed to present your business model, um, to the class and you were graded on, on all of these, all the various aspects of, of developing your business plan. And so they, they decided they wanted to do a, um, an online retail e-commerce model. They wanted to do subscription based. Um, and at the time, you know, this was, basically the spring of 2012, no one had been really doing coffee subscriptions yet. And so, um, you know, they kind of thought, well, let's, you know, maybe let's present this idea of a coffee subscription. And um, the weekend of graduation, they actually ran a Kickstarter and decided to, you know, take this project, the school project and make it an actual business. Um, and so they launched the weekend of graduation. They were funded um, about $10,000 um, in 2012 and it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but back in 2012 when Kickstarter was just starting, you know, that was a hugely successful, um, Kickstarter. So, so that was a big deal. And then, um, you know, Shark Tank is always looking for, you know, new ideas, new entrepreneurs, new businesses that, that might be good on the show. And they reached out to the university of Arizona and asked them if they had, 
anything exciting up and coming and they pointed them in the direction of Sam and Connor doing Misto Box. And so from there they, they went on the show and they pitched it. Um, so all of this was actually before I joined the team. Uh, so I wasn't there for the pitch. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of how, how all of that kind of fell together. Hmm. Cool. Well, I would, I will, I will disagree with you just a tiny bit. You said that uh, most of the companies wing it. Actually, I had hand ground, I think two shows before, and the guys had amazing strategy for the Kickstarter. They knew uh, very exactly how much they will uh, get from it. They had obviously a much lower goal, but they actually had algorithm where they could uh, calculate it, which I was very impressed about. Uh, so we talked a lot with them about Kickstarter, but how about you? Uh, do you have some tips for uh, you know uh, companies who want to try out Kickstarter? Do you want to have some tips how to do it? Yeah, I mean, like I said, Kickstarter was a very um, young platform in 2012 at the time that we launched our Kickstarter. And so uh, they didn't have these sophisticated strategies. No one had yet figured out how to hack the process or, or go viral by using Kickstarter. Um, at the time, you know, Connor and Sam mainly just focused on spreading the word about Mustabox through their family and friends initially to kind of get that, um, to get the funding and they kind of were able to do the fundraising within that, that smaller circle. Um, so nowadays, you know, if we had, if we had launched now, it would be, we would probably do everything totally differently. Um, you know, other than the fact that our model is totally different today than we were when we launched, um, you know, obviously there's a, there are a ton of proven strategies that can really help to propel a Kickstarter, um, we would use press and marketing before the campaign, you know, reach out to the press, get some PR going. Um, you know, the video is super important. So you have to use a really high quality video. You have to be really clear um, about your product. Um, you need to structure your rewards very specifically. That's going to optimize the amount of money that you're able to raise. Um, so, yeah, we'd probably change everything we did. Hmm. But Yes, you are right that in 2012, 10,000 bucks was a, uh, a lot of money for Kickstarter because they were much, much, much smaller. Um, okay, so uh, yes, you, you mentioned that you would do video because you did not even have video at that time, right? No, we actually, we did do a video. Um, we've actually, we removed the video from our Kickstarter page mainly because A, the video that they put out at the time wasn't that great. Uh, it was a totally different branding scheme. Um, our product that we offered at the time was really different, and Sam and Connor hadn't ran the business yet, so they didn't even really know 100% what the model would look like. Um, so we've actually, you know, it was actually doing more confusion than helping us now. So we decided to pull that off of uh, the Kickstarter page. I see. Okay. Uh, nothing is stopping you to do another Kickstarter. Do you plan to do something like that? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we have plans for another Kickstarter. We, you know, our, our model as a subscription is pretty stable. Um, you know, we don't, we're not necessarily planning on launching any other products or services that would require another Kickstarter launch. So yeah, probably not. Oh, okay. I just, you know, I just wanted to be your first PR. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let you know if we do, you can, you can help spread the word. Cool. We'll do. All right. Shark Tank, man, I I had uh, I found your episode. Uh, I had to dig very deep on the internet, but it is possible to find. 
and uh, I was impressed by the pitch. That was so well delivered, and I really knew what you guys talk about because many times we hear these pitches. It's like, what is that? Is that is that a product? Is that a service? What what do they want to do? You guys did a great job. Not only that, but there is this guy called Mr. Wonderful, who is the the evil one, right? Who always tries. Who is very negative. Always tries to kind of. Uh, destroy you let's use that word and he, even he was impressed uh by all your answers you, you you had for him so who was the author of the pitch yeah like i said uh this was this was still just connor and sam the founders mm-hmm. um and they they wrote the pitch together and they practiced it you know probably thousands of times you know even as they're waiting to go into the tank you know they just wanted to make sure that they had everything worded and presented exactly as they wanted it to. So yeah, they created it together. Wow, very impressive. And uh, do you have any tips how to do a good pitch? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, awesome. it's really, really important to present the problem uh, first and then demonstrate how your product or service is going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, I think that a lot of times it's really easy to get excited and to forget, you know, what's what's going to make an impact on on a potential investor or someone who might help take your company to the next level. Um, you know, present the problem that that your product is solving first, so that they can they can feel that that kind of discomfort or feel that uh, feel that there's a need, and then you can pr- you you can pretty much present how your you know your product your service basically solves that. Um, secondly, I think it's really important to know your numbers. Um, you know, like Mr. Wonderful said, at, you know, drilling them with all of those questions like, you know, cost of customer acquisition, th- those kinds of things. Um, it's important to do your homework, do your research, know what your numbers are, know how your business model is going to function, how you're going to be gaining revenue, what your margins are going to be. Um, that's really important to a lot of investors because to them, you know, this is your passion, but for them, it's an investment. So they're, you know, they're making sure that they're getting a return on their money. Um, it's also important to show potential investors, you know, an upward trajectory to show that your business meets a need in the market and has the potential for growth down the line. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I would add one more thing um, because when I came to the United States in 2010, I wanted to learn filming, and um, I took some courses and I needed to practice. So what I did, I went to different uh, incubators and asked uh, the guys that I would do free videos for them if they pitch. You know, they would do pitch- pitches and I will film them and I, they can use the video. I just need to practice. Right. So uh, I, I went through many, many pitches. And uh, one thing which many of them did is that they used the most complicated, most sophisticated sentences and words. You always have to make sure that, that the person you are pitching to, they will understand what you want to say. You know, right. so use right. That. It's easy to get, it's easy to get in your own head and try. You want to impress people. You want to, you know, make make yourself or make make your product seem um, important and serious and something that would be a good investment. But the danger of that is um, it's really easy to overcomplicate it and put, you know potentially confuse you know someone who might potentially be an investor. Exactly. Exactly. It happened to me so many times I had no clue what the person was pitching. You know, I was like, mm, okay, whatever. Uh, all right. So uh, <laughs> you mentioned one word that Mr. Wonderful asked, the customer, the cost of customer acquisition. And uh, 
I think Samantha had an answer for that, which was like, whoa, you know, let's everybody who's listening to the show put your hands on your heart and say, do you really know that number? It's, it's crazy how many people don't know that number. And uh, in some, you know, if you, if you do it online, like, for example, I have some online businesses. For me, that's kind of easy. Uh, but with uh, retail business, it's very hard. So good job, guys. You had that number there, right? Yeah, that was that was part of um, part of the school project, I believe, was to have all that information. And you know, they Sam and Connor are, are very well versed on on that side of stuff. So that was you know knowing that information, obviously, as as a business that they wanted to launch and to be successful. Um, I think that was that was just evidence for to show that how well they were prepared and how ready they were to get it started. Yeah, and it's it's when it comes to. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a vital number, by the way. So it's so important for every business to know how much your customer costs, because based on that, you can adjust your uh, campaigns, your, your marketing and everything, right? It's if that number is so awesome, if you have it, it can. Yeah, really absolutely. Yeah, it can be a, it, it can be a game changer if you're able to if you're able to uh, figure that out. Yeah, cool. OK, so when I was watching the show, you know, uh, you impressed two people. Actually, you impressed only one person. That was Mr. Wonderful. And he offered his uh, investment for exchange of 25% of the company. And then uh, I think Samantha basically had to convince Mark Cuban, another investor, but he wanted 30% of the company for, you know, his participation uh, and his investment. Why didn't why didn't you didn't go with Mr. Wonderful? Why did you fight for uh, Mark Cuban? Yeah, um, Sam and Connor went into the Shark Tank, and they pretty much sized up all of the sharks going into it. And they knew that, that Mark's experience in e-commerce and the businesses he had previously invested in in the online sector had done well in the past. And so... Going into the pitch, they kind of knew it ahead of time that they really wanted to have Mark Cuban on the team. Huh. How cool. So it was the whole pitching was for Mark Cuban, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, they, you know, if Mark had dropped out, it's hard to, you know, make a conjecture about whether or not they would have done the deal with Mr. Wonderful. But uh, yeah, they, they went into it, you know, Definitely intentionally hoping to catch Mark's eye. For me, one of my favorite investors is also Mark Cuban. He has a lot of personality. He's down to earth. You know, he's, he's kind of cool, right? Uh, does he drink coffee, by the way? No, he doesn't drink coffee. How disappointing. Yeah. Oh, no. We've so, tried. Oh, you tried, and he ne- never liked it. I mean, he'll, he'll drink the coffee, but he's, you know, it's not his... He doesn't, he's not like a daily drinker, that's for sure. It's so sad. Huh. And he invested in Mr. Box. Yeah. Well, he liked Connor and Sam knew their stuff. And so he was, he saw, he saw the value in the model. Yeah. And I think uh, nowadays there is a saying that invest in people rather than in products, which is, you know, it's a saying, obviously you have to take it with reservation, but you could see that those guys have the numbers, very passionate. I would invest right away. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. All right. You know, other thing which I noticed about your company uh, is the style of work you have, guys. I just read today the article. I'm sorry about that, but I just found that blog article and it impressed me. You are scattered all over the world, right? Yeah. And uh, 
So it's not like you have one central location where you guys, you know, have offices and stuff, but you are everywhere. How does this work? Yeah, um, I would say the Mistabox model is a very, you know, modern model. We we're an entirely remote company. Um, so I I live and work at home in uh, Tempe, Arizona, um, and everybody else kind of lives and works wherever they are. So. Our brand manager, she lives in Denver, Colorado. Um, our customer service representative, she lives in uh, San Diego. Um, Connor, one of the founders, he kind of moves all over the place. He usually spends most of his time either here in Phoenix, where his family lives, or in San Francisco. Um, Samantha, she was living in San Francisco for the greater part of the last two years, but she's actually moved up to Seattle for the time being. So, yeah, everybody lives... Um, all over the place and uh yeah that's that's amazing i mean people ask me because i have a company still in europe called green plantation and people ask me how how do i manage it and uh i was like oh here's mr box how do they manage it you know so and you actually mentioned some tools and some um methodology you use and i will link that article because that's pretty awesome and i just add i mean you guys mentioned their tools you use and when it comes to me and Green Plantation, we use a lot Facebook, Facebook chat. We have a Facebook group, which is private. Only the guys who work at Green Plantation can, you know, kind of add, attach documents and do stuff. So there's a lot of ways and it is possible. And I, and I personally think that's the future. How about you? Do you think that, you know, that's the future for startups? Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at it from a business perspective, you know, we have no overhead costs of a physical location whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. So that, you know, financially it's super liberating and we're able to put that money into other aspects of the business that are going to give us a better return than just renting an office space or, or stuff like that. Um, I think it's absolutely the future where everybody's connected. Almost everybody has access to the internet in some way or another. Everybody already owns a computer so everybody has a portal or an access to be able to do work that they need to do. Um, so having to be at the same physical location isn't, you know, isn't necessary as it once was. You know, everybody has these tools to get the job done. So we use a, a lot of available tools that are out there that um, are low cost or free sometimes. You know, we love using this, this application called Slack, um, which is how we communicate internally. So... Every, everybody on the team has a private one-on-one -on -one individual channel to message each other. Um, there are group channels where people who are involved in that particular project or that area of the business, they get those notifications and they're involved in that chat. And so um, I have probably 40 different channels that are on my personal Slack, whether that be you know one-on-one uh, -on -one or um, team or group channels or... Um, other integrations with other other tools that we use for our business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I tried Slack. It didn't work because the Slovak team was not on it. Uh, they didn't just didn't get the whole concept. But yeah, I, you know, for me, Slack was better organized than Facebook uh, as Facebook chat because we use a lot of Facebook chat and it's very hard to find the conversation while on Slack it's much better organized. I guess everybody has to find their own ways. Uh, Yes, and use a lot Google Docs, which is the same with us, you know, the sheets and uh, Google Documents, and we can co collaborate on these. So I love your uh, what you said about offices, that you don't have to uh, basically pay for a, for a location, 
but there is also another benefit is that you guys work from most of the, most of you guys work from home and you are with your families and your yeah friends. absolutely i um i my wife is a teacher and we just had our third baby so she when she goes back from maternity leave um i'm home with our with our three kids so i have a little bit of help uh so that i don't have to constantly watch them i do have to get work done from time to time obviously but uh but yeah, it's awesome to be able to spend so much time with my family, um, you know, especially over the summers. She's home all the time. So yeah, it's a great it's a great opportunity. And Sam, in that blog that you mentioned, I think that Sam talks about how happy it makes everybody. And so yeah, yeah I mean, I don't have a morning commute. I don't have to deal with traffic. I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. So um, definitely one of the major benefits of, of working from home. Mm, cool. Congrats on the baby, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to talk about this because uh, I know so many friends who hustle and they go to offices and they do it in an old way. And I would be the same if I wouldn't move into the United States in 2010 when there was no jobs and the economy was down, so I could not do anything else, just find my own way. But once I did it and I had to do it from home, obviously, again, for a saving of money and we had also the kids, uh, I would never go back. I, for me to get a job which requires physical location, that's just, you know, it's not happening. And you mentioned one disadvantage there, which actually I think it's advantage. You said something like, uh, we miss a lot of interaction in the office, which is sad. Yes, personal interaction, you can, you know, you have to exchange it for the online, but it has one positive aspect, is the efficiency. Because I know when I used to work for office, in offices, there was a lot of coffee breaks, a lot of chit-chats lot of cigarette breaks in Europe, whatever you name it, but it took away the time from efficiency. Now, if I'm on my own at home, I focus, I do my work, I do my job, and after that, it's all family. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, for us, we, you know, we we do interact on Slack. We do have a once a week uh, meeting where everybody in the team um, hops on a Google Hangout. We all have some, you know, before the meeting starts, we'll kind of joke around and have some small talk. So there's definitely ways where we're able to relate and get that interaction with each other and build that camaraderie a little bit. Um, but you're right, we totally remove a lot of those distractions that you would otherwise have if uh, if you, you know, if you work in an office compared to working at home, we get a, a rid of a lot of those distractions. Of course, Working at home has a ton of other distractions, you know, with my kids, housework, dishes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, like looking at social media, all, all sorts of distractions can pop up. So I think it's really important if you do work from home that you need to create a lot of systems and create a routine and a regimen so that you're able to stay on task and get the things that you need to get done as opposed to, you know, succumbing to any distractions that are going to come your way. Yeah. And there's, for me, the biggest problem is also the fridge availability. You know, the fridge <laughs> is there. and <laughs> Right. But you also don't have to necessarily eat out at restaurants or fast food places like if you're working at an at a office. That's true. And I love to cook. So it's actually perfect that I have that lunch break when I can actually yeah, do exactly. something crazy, which kids will not eat otherwise. And it's only me. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, some roasters will ask, uh, you know, oh, but in roasting doesn't apply because we have to have places and stuff. And it's it's not, it's changing. I have to say (laughs) it's changing. It's awesome because 
I'm, you know, I uh, teamed up with one Brazilian farmer who actually lives here in San Francisco but has a farm in Brazil. We started a company called Unleash Coffee and we don't have office. So we work exactly as, you know, he has his office at home and he actually works somewhere. So, you know, he does that and I'm working from home. And we roast using a space called Coro, which is a, in Berkeley, there is a co-roasting place and you can rent uh, on the roasters. You can rent hours on the roasters. And that's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. And you meet all the roaster guys there and they have beautiful lab. So you can have equipment, which, you know, even my roaster in Slovakia cannot afford, you know, so right. it's all available. And you roast on, either you can use Probat, which is a five kilo Probat, I think, or you can roast on Lorings. I mean, who can afford a Loring? You know, it's, it's yeah. crazy, right? So that, that's changing. So, I, you know, I can see that in the future, there'll be more places for roasters, for chefs, where they can kind of use a joint facility to do, do the product and the rest is you know can happen like uh, off so this is it for today thank you so much for listening to this episode with Seth Mills from Mr. Box and do not forget there is another one coming up very very soon in the next one we are going to talk about uh, coffee habits how do people drink coffee in United States we are going to also talk about Mr. Box how they accept uh, coffee from roasters what kind of coffee they select for their portfolios we're going to answer your questions and much, much, much more. Thank you also for your iTunes reviews. I read them all. I enjoy them a lot. And uh, they help the show to uh, appear higher in iTunes so other people can find it. And they help me to understand what you like about the show. And sometimes I find pretty awesome stuff like uh, DC Cranky mentions my Slovak slash Hungarian accent that he enjoys it, which is great because I sometimes have a feeling that, you know, that may be the negative part of the show, my accent. And there's also people like Chris Fava who will compare me to Tim Ferriss, the giant uh, star of podcasts and all kind of online stuff. So, you know, if you compare me to Tim Ferriss, you know what's going to happen? My ego is going to... All right. Have a great one until the next show. And I wish you all the best and only good coffee. Bye.